Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to artists about their favorite albums. Today, we're talking with Sammy Lanzetta. We talked about Bell and Sebastian's 1996 debut album, Tiger Mouth. So, if you came to this podcast for the comprehensive history of everything Stuart Murdoch, that's really not what we do here, so sorry. If you are looking for that, I'd highly recommend Mark Hogan's Pitchfork review from November 2020. So pause the pod, read it, then come back here. Okay, assuming you're back now. We do, in fact, talk about the feeling of isolation this album invokes and how that relates to Sammy's experience last year living in New York City. We chat a lot about mental illness and trying to find that passion again with music, on your own terms, without shows and touring. Sammy released Ceiling Mirror in 2019 on 6131 Records. It's a great album, and you should check it out right now. Lastly, we had a tiny bit of technical difficulties, but nothing that affects your listening experience. Just a few pops and clicks due to Zoom, and you know, the internet. Okay, on to the episode! Are you vegan, or do you simply enjoy good food delivered straight to your door? Then you should probably check out Nourish. Nourish offers culturally diverse, gluten-free, organic vegan food for meal delivery and catering, all while enriching their community, employees, and our planet. If you're in Charlotte, North Carolina, you can find them at nourishcharlotte.com. If you're in the New York area, check out nourishdelivered.nyc. Nourish yourself. You deserve it. Hey, Sammy, how's it going? It's going pretty uh, medium. I always feel like that's like the way I'm starting these, but it's like such a loaded question during this time frame of life. Yeah, I was like, I don't want to lie. I don't want to lie to people. It's not great. (laughs) It's pretty okay, though. Like, I'm here. All right. So today we are talking about Bell and Sebastian's 1996 debut album tiger milk and so when was the first time you heard about this record um so i was growing up and there wasn't like a whole lot of things to do except for like go to the local bookstore which was not like a cool bookstore it was definitely like a second and charles or a barnes and noble or like a chain bookstore but i they had a used cd bin And I think I had heard a lot of Bell and Sebastian singles at that point, like some of the hits. And I really liked um, their one track that that was on like a way later album. But I was like, oh, like I know this band, like I should, this CD's $2. (laughs) And I bought the CD and it just stayed in my car for like the rest of high school. Um, But I got it when I was like, it was probably one of the first CDs that I ever got physically. Mm, yeah I feel like I remember there was like a point I feel like it's like a story that I keep telling where it's almost like I made like a conscious effort 
to just not only listen to like fast punk or like metal all the time so it's like let me go back and re kind of discover i guess indie rock things um growing up i feel like i remembered them as like a band that was almost like a uh punchline in a way like it was it was like a way For that sure. like punks in my school or whatever would kind of like refer to someone in a almost in a derogatory sense but you know no I know it's like oh you hipster go listen to Bell and Sebastian like for sure like I tell people I like that band and I immediately like I'm like oh man we're getting these like corny ass white lady vibes from her um, yeah but yeah I mean it was like an I, I know exactly what you mean it is it was like a punchline but they also were like I see why they were it was like they're very greatly successful in the indie rock world and it's, it's not cool to listen to them <laughs> yeah I, I yeah I remember I think one of the things that kind of gave me like an okay to listen to them uh was there was like a local punk guy that you know was like he liked the coolest things and you know he said Bell and Sebastian was cool so <laughs> and I was like oh, all right well, you know maybe vindicated I, yeah uh, but the record that I would, uh, I feel like I always go to is Boy with the Arab Strap. Um, so I really that's, had never listened to this record. That's so, I'm arguably like, I feel like that is Bell Sebastian's best album. Um, this one is just like very nostalgic and personal to me. It came out the month I was born, um, which is another fun fact. And yeah. I don't, I mean, like, it is, like, a very slow and mellow album, um, but it's interesting because Stuart Murdoch, like, he always described himself as listening to, like, ACDC and Thin Lizzy and stuff, like, he also wouldn't have listened to this music. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that people that, I mean, not in all cases, but um, I like that about that kind of backstory with it. I think that someone that maybe listened to, I guess, hard rock, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, probably has like a good vibe on how to make softer music too uh, and a weird thing about like this record is uh, this is actually the first time I ever listened to it for doing this is kind of like how everything was basically already there you know like on Boy with the Arab Strap like things are fleshed out more in the way that we view Bell and Sebastian to this day but it's not like a million miles um, like sometimes it's like being that this was a record that just kind of came out of nowhere in certain ways like it's it's weird that it's just this well honed from the jump like my first I don't want people to hear my first record no that's I mean yeah that's I'm like music that I wrote when I first was trying to start like writing music is it doesn't exist anymore for like a good reason <laughs> Like you can't I don't no one should ever listen to like early songwritings and he's like oh I can't walk right now I'm just gonna pick up the guitar and be really amazing at it and like be the most successful band in the world like it's it's like I feel like there's when I listen to things like Bell and Sebastian there's always like this feeling where I'm like man I wish I could just like give everything this kind of space like everything just has like the best space like things aren't just layered for the sake of being layered like it's he's giving you almost like the least so that everything can kind of grow around it and that's still even like so present on this record I could be like Mr. Remember. I think he wrote everything on like his acoustic guitar and then live recorded it and was like everybody play around me <laughs> like I'm pretty sure that was how yeah. the record was recorded 
Yeah, I had to like look at look up that like a couple times. I feel like I after I started listening to this record, like I told that to someone that that was the case, and then I had to like check myself before we did the interview, uh, just to kind of I was like, is that really or if it almost it sounds feels insane. like insane. You're like yeah. that sounds like the worst way to record an album. Why does this album sound so good? Yeah, like it doesn't. I mean, I've had friends that have kind of done that, but their records are even like more sparse than this ends up being like you know there's like full band arrangements it kind of makes sense like if the whole record was all based around just him and in a lot of ways it is but it you know it's like I but I don't even feel like when I'm listening to it like I go like oh that's the part where he speeds up or anything and maybe that's because I'm not I don't have good rhythm uh but I I mean like I I am curious like did he get a like a track like a drum track or like how how did he stay in I don't know I don't I think it kind of mentions that um it's it says that they had to kind of match his racing tempos is what it it's yeah I did read that and because I was like I sent you an article I was like by the way I was like here's like the cliff notes of this album it really is like if you I would almost say if someone (laughs) I would hope someone's listening to this if you're listening to this episode check out the Pitchfork review. Uh, and while that's not always something I'll say, um, this is actually like, well here's informed. me endorsing Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, it, it's like the best, it's almost more of just a history of who the band is than like a review itself. Like, yeah, it's such a crazy, yeah. like that was what made like, I think the album personal for me too, is like, I've listened to this album knowing nothing about anything like at all in related to this band's history. I was like this is just a cool album and I found it for a few dollars when I was a teenager and then it stayed in my car when I could drive um but then I was like reading it and I was like oh my god this album was a product of isolation and we're in isolation Mm, (laughs) yeah also he's like you know finding out he was a runner and then was like oh can't run gotta do guitar stuff it's like I don't know that spoke to me too I was like I feel like if I couldn't do any running stuff I would also just be like all right well I only play guitar now (laughs) yeah yeah it's definitely you know and I know it's probably like me projecting things onto it I guess both of us in a sense but yeah to be like during a pandemic or just like in a sense like for Stuart Murdoch it's like your life is probably heading in one direction like it like you were saying like he was a runner and seemed like a pretty active person and then all of a sudden it's just bedridden due to this mysterious illness for it seemed like a couple years uh you know and that like kind of reshaped I guess everything after so it's like while we're in the pandemic you know our life as we knew it before kind of is over in certain respects and then we kind of figure out who we're going to be after yeah I mean I just think I was on plan a for my life I was like oh I'm gonna be in a band gonna be a bartender just like band and bartending this is fine like I can do this forever and it's like actually no you absolutely cannot do either of those things right now um and I mean I spent like the first half of quarantine being like all right this is my calling like I can just write now I like you know I can sit in my room and write music um and like but I mean it didn't feel like that was something I like could do feasibly at the beginning of quarantine I was just like um I don't know it was just like I it was it was a different like it changed the way I look at making music um and now I'm on like plan b where I'm 
trying to go to college and you know like very much taking a different turn and I'm like oh I'm a tech person now <laughs> so it's yeah. just kind of like made my life 180 in a really bizarre way for yeah sure. I mean I feel like I recently like at the start of pandemic that was kind of like the positive thing we were definitely like telling ourselves like I'll be creative I'll write yeah. you know it's like people were like I'll write the next great American novel type of thing um but I just I didn't feel creative at all and I feel like I'm finally just getting to a point where I'm like wanting to write you know so it's like we're this many months in you know um not to make this like a podcast about me yeah I didn't feel that spark of creativity <laughs> that we were promised yeah. I mean it was yeah the spark of inspiration has not really been there I'm like I don't know what I can write about like going to the laundromat <laughs> yeah. I don't know my life got really like there's not a lot of events going on and I, I mean like it was it's a good it was a good time to self-reflect um because I a lot in my music write about mental illness and like my experience with mental illness but I mean yeah I I think it was just like me disassociating from the pandemic a lot and also like I write a lot about mental illness so like for me when the pandemic started I was like everything's fine so for like six months I was just like things are fine it's fine and then I had like nothing to write about just because I'm like everything's great right now <laughs> um and then obviously later like when winter hit and it was very obvious that like things were not going to get better anytime soon um I all of like the feelings that I had disassociated from and like the positive part of quarantine all hit at once was like actually no things are worse than ever and then I like had to take some time diving into my mental illness and then also all of a sudden I was like wow I can I like I can want to write music now and it's also too I think like me being like all right my main focus needs to be like taking care of myself and going to college and like finding out how to make money now that all of these industries I was working in previously have vanished um yeah so I took a step back and where I was like all right I want to go to college because obviously like I can't tour right now and the things that were hindering me before aren't really factors um so I started doing I'm in school right now, which feel like I just never thought I would say that or do that. Um, but I found now that I'm trying to do something else that I like use music to procrastinate. I'll be like, oh, that'd be a fun song. Um, so now all of a sudden it like the urge has kind of been back just because mm -hmm. of something else that I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. So now I want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I feel like with uh, playing music lately, um, I mean, at the start of pandemic, it was like, I had set up my life to kind of like work a couple part-time jobs, kind of the same situation as anybody who's like trying to tour. Um, but it was like, wait, I work these stupid jobs and now I can't tour. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that was for me. I, I was just getting unemployment at the beginning of the pandemic and that was awesome, obviously. <laughs> um, and then I, it ran out. They're like, no more. You've exhausted your benefits. So I was like, all right, well, I have no skills. Um, I can wait tables and bartend really. That's, that's it. Um, 
and I started working at a restaurant but it was it was making me lose my mind like the only people that are going out to eat right now are like people that don't give a shit about anyone (laughs) um so it was like particularly bad and I was taking a lot of uh customer abuse and the money just like was terrible like it it used to be like a lucrative industry and now it was I wasn't like no one's tipping it was bad um, like, I, I guess I was promised at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone's like, oh, once like dining comes back, like we're going to tip a bazillion dollars to our <laughs> servers. And it's like, no, this is like what our friends would do if they were the ones that are going out. But like people that are nice and kind and have consciousnesses are like staying inside. Um, so I was just like, yeah, I, I mean, the only reason I'm doing this is a tour. So why am I still doing this here? I was kind of losing my mind. Yeah, it, it's like the worst, I mean, you basically already said it, but it's like the worst people are the ones dining inside for the most part, and the worst people are the ones that aren't going to, like, tip, so. Yeah, yeah, so I mean, like, everyone who's worked in the service industry and done music, like, we all know it's a special breed of obnoxious, but it's like, it was fine when you're like, all right, well, the relieving thing is sometimes my job is fun and like my friends will come visit me and have a drink at my bar. And like, that's not a thing. Right now it's like, I am just handing takeout food to people. I am working harder than I ever have in my life. And they're like not tipping me in front of my face. (laughs) The last place I worked, we had to ask because we were doing contactless transactions. We had to ask at the end of our order, we were like, hey, and would you like to leave a tip on that order? And the amount of people are just like, nope. (laughs) But countless, countless times, people would just be like, nope. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, I'm exposing myself to a deadly virus for you. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's like a hard thing sometimes. Like, um, you know, yeah, like I think people think that whenever they're taking a takeout order, it's like, well, the person didn't like serve me, so they don't need it. I you know, had they don't someone need it say that, that to my yeah. face. I had, well, like, it was just such a slap in the face because I'm making less money than I ever had doing it. And I was working like 10 times as hard as I did. Because when you wait tables or you bartend, you go in and you like do some cleaning, but it's like pretty clear cut what you're doing. But in like with COVID, it became some like, in between back of house and front of house experience where like all right I am now doing kitchen stuff on top of do like wrapping your food right it was just like it was beyond like it was beyond any other service job I had but it was it wasn't like the place's fault it was just the way things had to be to be safe and yeah it was, just, it was really bad well yeah. I mean like that's and that's kind of been the reflection it's like all right well maybe all of my service jobs have been bullshit um but at the end of the night I was like I get to wear snake pants and be a rock star and like like haha jokes on these people verbally abusing me like I do other shit too like I don't know it's just you had the release from it but now I'm like wow my life is just like working at this vegan McDonald's and <laughs> slinging food to the most ungrateful people these girls came up I think I was, um, I meant to say this earlier and like rambled about something else, but they came up and I asked them, I was like, oh, do you want to leave a tip on the order? And they're like, well, nobody's serving us right now. So, (laughs) and I was like, yes, I do not exist. (laughs) I am not working or doing anything. Thank you. I do not deserve to eat tonight. Like $0 for me. (laughs) The most brutal 
experience <laughs> when someone's like oh yeah you don't deserve to get paid I feel like I mean and it's like yes I understand like even for takeout orders we should tip but I feel like if someone specifically asked me then I'm going to even more so feel like I have to tip because they brought I, it I to feel my like attention. that was what we were trying to do we were like yeah trying to guilt people into, like some people are a little bit better at it than the other so like I know this girl that would ask people she'd be like did you want to leave a tip and then she would just stare at them it would <laughs> work like, for me make a lot yeah it would work for me too because I'm <laughs> okay. like a, a polite person and like in that I think it was just like a combination of extreme frustration and jealousy because I wish I was that kind of an asshole like I wish that I could just be like nope no tip for you and like clear conscious and just come up and like be that way to people but I, I could never I'm way too polite I would be like yeah take all my money I have no money but take all of it thank you so yeah, much I'm fine I'm fine with being shamed into doing the right thing you know so yeah, yeah I think more people need that like if it takes well, shaming clearly- to make people do the right thing then clearly people can't be trusted on their own they can't. <laughs> we, we determined yeah. uh do you think uh here's here's my uh segue do you think Stuart murdoch tips for takeout orders i would love to find out <laughs> um my instant guess would be he seems he seems like a wholesome person i feel like he would tip yeah but sometimes i read about people who i really like admire not tipping and it's insane to me like it's something I can't even fathom <laughs> no tipper it's just like we can get down to like capitalism and like whatever but I don't know like to me that it speaks on a greater level that you just don't care about people like the working class and people that are beneath you um but yeah I don't I don't understand why people wouldn't tip I'm sorry I'm like still thinking about like I remember one time I was like stoned and in on tour in the passenger seat and I tipped the McDonald's guy like $20 and they were so happy because nobody ever tips them and they were like I don't even know if they're allowed to take tips but this person did and they were so excited and I was just like I want everyone to feel that way like at some point during their job (laughs) because working sucks yeah yeah I think we should probably tip like more industries you know yeah (laughs) I mean I tip my I tip my weed driver um I'm like, y'all, you guys are doing the most. This is breaking the law. Sorry, yeah. mom, listening. <laughs> always, always tip your sex worker. That's a really important unknown one. If anyone um, is listening, you should always tip sex workers virtually or not. If you're, if you're doing the OnlyFans thing, you have to give them a bazillion dollars because that industry sucks right now, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we should. I like tips. I used to work at a venue and it was really funny because they had like an option at the end if you print like bought a ticket it was just the way that they printed because it was the same system that was like we used for the bar so it would ask you if after you bought a concert ticket if you wanted to tip me and like 99% of people would never like they would just like slash it out because they're like yeah I'm buying a concert ticket why would I tip you but then some people would just be like do you make a lot of money here? how much should I tip you? And I'm just like, you, you can if you want to. <laughs> I know yeah. I don't make a lot of money here. And some people would randomly like leave me money and leave me tips. And like a lot of the times it was just like old dudes being like, I like your tattoos. Um, but I was also like, this is like, this is sweet. I wish more people would do this. <laughs> yeah, when I, was, when I would do door uh, at any of the venues in town, 
like if it's let's say it's like a seven dollar show and they give me ten dollars like i'd always hand the money back like over the tip jar you know so it's like slyly like hey one of these for me so i don't have to like say it and it said tips really big you know so it's like you know sometimes that would work you know oh yeah i mean yeah again like people can't be trusted to do the right thing on their own or and a lot of people like don't even they don't even think about it like i i had a friend who was waiting tables uh here in new york and this like she took care of a, a large party and they just walked out of like a 400 table and like just forgot to tip and then they ended up like contacting them and being like why didn't you tip and they're like oh we we forgot like, <laughs> like just yeah. didn't even think about it did you see that Stuart Murdoch uh, was a living janitor at a Protestant church while writing this record? Um, honestly, I didn't know that. I think I skimmed over that detail. I was like, oh, yeah, you like God? Okay, cool, cool. Me too, me too. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if, uh, if like, he is religious. I guess it was just a job, you know? Like, you know, I feel like, I don't know. I, don't know. I feel like there's so many, like, religious undertones and balance. I don't know. I I could be just like talking out of my ass right now, but I feel like he does. He writes about the Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always just like sometimes with that, I feel like with like Scottish or Irish music, there's like such like like Catholicism or kind of like uh, to well to us as Americans, almost like old school religion just mm -hmm. tied into it innately. Yeah. That I'm like I don't know if it's like an innate thing that they just kind of grow up with. I would say probably even more so with I don't know. Well, I grew, I grew up in a house like, like I I grew up as a, a Catholic and then as a teenager I was kind of like you know like was like this is stupid but like no I grew up being very like god bless um you know I was very into it and my parents were into it and like my mom made me go to church every Sunday with her and I had to go into like the Sunday school so I do remember at some point being like like ah yes like this is the world um and now it's you know changed as i'm older um but yeah i know that is an interesting point but i wonder do you know how Stuart murdoch's like health is now or is that still like a thing i don't know because don sebastian like played shows and they toured and stuff so i don't know like is he fine is he just like a trooper because i i feel like he has like stuff where he couldn't I don't know it like affected his mobility so I'd be surprised I mean I feel like touring would be hard here yeah. let me let me Google maybe when you have like because now the band has like 10 people in it so how much does one person have to do when you have like nine other people in your band yeah that sounds sick yeah I remember yeah. when I was like trying to be Sammy Lynn's out of the band and I was like I'm not very good at guitar I wonder if you can just drown that by having one million bandmates. Yeah, you could. I mean, the band pretty much, I mean, I don't know how like their inner workings are today, but especially at this point, it was, you know, Bell and Sebastian was Stuart Murdoch. Yeah. You know, and I don't know how much that is today, but I would assume that it's basically the same thing. So, I so like all bands are like that, unless you have like a power duo and like you are like really good at like, like, I feel like there's a lot of like couple bands where it's like uh these two people like write the core of the songs but I feel like it's most bands I'm like there's like one person driving this for sure um I don't know it's different for like in with Sammy Lanzetta music I write like the skeletons of the songs 
on guitar and then like write all the vocals. Um, but in an old band of mine, my friend Greg wrote all of the guitar stuff and I was playing bass, but like he would write the guitar stuff and then I wrote vocals over the guitar stuff. And I was like, this is cr- like to have a collaborative music project, like yeah. it's crazy. Um, but ever since then, I'm just like, um, you know, I'm like, I, I don't know. Cause I don't know. Like I, it's even hard for me to play other people's music. I'm like, I'm not at a skill level where I'm very good at like, I don't know, doing production stuff. Um, and like, I don't know One of my like life goals has been to just like demo out my entire album myself, which is like what I'm trying to do now for my bedroom pop era <laughs> stuff but I you know it's like a lot of my music like I don't know I wanted to make rock and roll music so much and that's like required other people to do um and yeah I mean like for Selm Sebastian it's interesting like how the sound traveled from Tiger Milk to where you're like all right I understand that this is like a one man's uh, one man's one man band thing like I understand where it's like okay this makes sense that he wrote this and has some backup stuff but now it is like it's very it's more complex a lot of people involved with this record I feel like it's like every track almost like traverses like the full era of Bell and Sebastian it's like all just kind of laid out like some part of this at some place we're gonna be you know it's like like even on track five with electronic renaissance it's like in later Bell and Sebastian, there's tons of like electronic stuff that comes into the music, but it's like the idea of, you know, the the ideas are just all laid out in this like first record, you know, um, and also kind of going back to what you were saying about like, you know, kind of like bedroom pop kind of stuff. Um, I, I think there's like a idea that like I struggle with too. It's like, that you're like you almost set up your LLC you know you set up your band like this the entity that the band is and you're like it has to be this forever you know and that's like a weird fallacy that you know it's like that's only a parameter you made in like your own mind you know for sure (laughs) well that's why I'm like I don't like I don't know I didn't consult anyone about my genre change I was just like nope the next Babylon's album is pop music no name changes nothing like it's just pop music and that's what it's gonna be because it's the kind of music I want to make now but I I remember making my first EP and was very like I don't know like I'm like really just like didn't know how to be a solo artist but it fascinated me to be like have like a singer-songwriter project and I was trying to get away from the music that I was making in these guy trap, which was like, like punk, crazy, whatever. Um, and then I made my like little singer songwriter EP. And then after that, I was like, no, no, I want like more rock and roll music. And then I ended up like um, going straight back into being like, all right, I'm making like a rock and roll album. But that was like definitely the goal. I was like, I want to make a cool rock and roll album. And now that I did that, I'm like, I would like to make another album, I think. That is not this genre. <laughs> yeah, so it might just be like how I how I write music as a singer songwriter. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like, I think a way for writing music, and I know it feels like we're not really talking about Bell and Sebastian, but I think it does lend itself to it. Is I feel like there's a thing with Bell and Sebastian, and I'm kind of speaking 
at the same time about like potentially like where your sound might go it's this idea that like i feel like Stuart murdoch just kind of like wrote whatever Stuart Mur murdoch wanted you know it's like it doesn't feel yeah, like i it. love that i love yeah. knowing that he just went in and then live took those recordings and he was like everybody figure it out <laughs> Yeah, and whatever that kind of ends up being in the back end, I feel like for for Bell and Sebastian or you know Stuart Murdoch, it's I feel like it's always going to sound like him in a in a way, even if it goes in some other direction. So I would say to you, probably more than you realize. I bet at the end of the day, even if you feel like it's like a genre change, it's still going to innately sound like you. And that I you know that as a positive, you know, it's like you can't get away from you. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. is true. Unfortunately, I've been stuck <laughs> with myself for yeah. like 25 years now. It may not be as drastic from the outside. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just thinking about like now, I'm like, damn, what would life have been if I wasn't fucking Sammy Lanzetta and I like just chose a band name? <laughs> and now I'm like thinking about all this stuff and I also think it made me resent a little bit of like how much of my life I have just effed up for myself to make music um yeah I've just like I I didn't go to school you know years ago when I could have when everyone else did when they were like 18 um I yeah I've never had a stable housing situation dating has been strange um but yeah I mean like now that I'm stuck inside I see all these people doing these releases for their music projects and I'm like, you guys didn't have to like fucking suffer and tour and do all this yeah. shit. And it makes me bitter almost because I'm like, why did I like bust my ass for an album that nobody listened to? Um, but that's, I mean, like, that's not true. I had a lot of fun and touring was really fun and there was a lot of like really cool stuff that come, came out of it. But yeah, like, I mean, we are being creative uh, with what we can do. Like, I think... I know Katie Malko is on your podcast. I think she does like some of like the best at home music stuff. Like I wish that I had it in in me and like also the equipment because I'm like that's like the best way to do a fucking release from home. Like, <laughs> um, and I just remember like earlier in 2020 that her music was coming out and I was just like, this is awesome. And I don't know, like I think she did a really good job of promoting herself even though we can't tour right now. Um, so I mean, like it's. It's good. I like. I do like seeing. I like seeing that people are still releasing music and like doing it. But it also made me realize, like, okay, maybe I don't need to tour forever and bust my butt like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, there is touring historically has been like the best way to get streams. It's just the best way to expose yourself. Um, but it's rock and roll's dead now. It's over. <laughs> So, yeah, so we need to make the pivot all into being pop artists uh, or just be fine with being blues dads, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, Stephanie Germanata became Lady Gaga, and I just really need the stage name, and it's over mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, total 180. Crazy what think, dresses. What do you think your stage name would be? I Once I come up with it, like, it's, it's going to, it'll be out there. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I already had the greatest band name of all time as a teenager. So I feel like I'm like, I'm out of good ideas. I just used up the best one I had. 
actually we should what we need to do right now is we'll just uh do you have any hot takes on sean roar or joey cahill <laughs> katie malco did not take my bait on this <laughs> i was say i'm gonna uh, something bad's gonna happen if i take the bait on this road. um hot takes on both of them i don't know my i just like joey cahill because i think he's like the opposite of Sean Rohrer in a lot of ways. Like, I feel like Joey is mom and Sean is dad. And like, I don't know. I feel like Joey is like, gives me the positive energy I need to be like, yes, like you got it. You were the best. And he's just the best cheerleader of that. And then Sean also makes me be like, no, but it has to be good. <laughs> and I feel like he's like the side of me that's like the logical like no Sammy like you have to like have a normal album release and it's gotta be good (laughs) um and then Joey's like this is dope and I'm like thanks Joey (laughs) it is dope I um also I think oh we should do a fun activity is uh we should rate or we should rank all of the 6131 bands (laughs) I would hate doing this (laughs) (laughs) absolutely hate doing this but i'm ready to do it i can, I can for sure have those answers for you mm, maybe we shouldn't do that i still uh, want there to be the 6131 death race where we ooh. all yeah we all race each other to the death because I, I went on a 6131 run steven and i ran together and i was like this is a label activity now yeah and steven from kindling from kindling yes okay yeah, uh, can, uh, uh, Steven will just send me uh, Grateful Dead stuff all the time. <laughs> That's how we talk. And anytime I post anything Grateful Dead related, Steven is like, I'm like, oh, I forgot Steven followed me almost. Like, it's like, but if I post something Grateful Dead related, like Steven is there. I think I told Steven about this really bizarre Grateful Dead show I got to do. I, I, I got, I said got and had simultaneously because I because I feel like I had no like I didn't have to play the show but it was like the weirdest thing I'd heard in my life and I was like I do have to play the show um and I also had no idea like on what scale it was gonna be basically they had backlined equipment set up on stage and they're like all right your band's gonna come through and you guys play one fucking Grateful Dead song and then you leave the stage and another band is gonna come up and do another Grateful Dead song and it was the most stressful Thing of my life <laughs> what do you Just, play what do you pay i'm telling my i'm telling on myself now because i don't remember the name it's <laughs> no it's i like i never listened to the grateful dead that was why also i was like the show's so bizarre but i like i don't like the grateful dead that much i, I have no problem with them i just am indifferent because i never listened to them um it's a slow one I don't know. I don't remember. All? I don't know that much. I feel like it's almost, I can't figure out. I, f- I feel like the past couple of years, I'm really trying to figure out if I like the Grateful Dead at all. But I just, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I do. Eras. Like, I like a couple of songs. I like a few songs. Like, I could make, I could almost like make you a playlist of like 10 songs. And they have up what like 30,000 songs. <laughs> look up what song this was I'm like this is obviously not gonna work um but I do remember I was out in public and I heard this song and I was like I know this song 
from somewhere and I was like oh yeah because I had to fucking learn it you doofus like <laughs> you covered the song and I just like that's like the only Grateful Dead song I know is the one that we covered mm. do you yeah. think Stuart Murdoch likes Grateful Dead hell no <laughs> what do you think Stuart Murdoch has been doing during the pandemic probably fucking writing beautiful music to cry to he's like i've been he's like pandemic i've been born in the pandemic like yeah i guess like if you, yeah if if he if he is a person that's still like fairly isolated i guess how much of the pandemic would have really like changed anything but Stuart murdoch is probably somebody yes that has written one uh an amazing record and probably is one of those people that actually wrote like the great well not american novel but you know like it probably has done both during the pandemic oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah the fact like i was just like what a skilled man like just like i you know hearing about how he i was like of course he was like a marathon runner and a champion athlete like i enjoy running and marathon running and stuff but like i am not good at it like they were like you get to be good at guitar and we don't we're not giving you any of the sport stuff no sport stuff for you um yeah that was like those are my skill sets but like I, I was like that's not fair that he has them all <laughs> yeah yeah I well about running um I feel like I kind of capped out I started running during the pandemic too but I feel like I listened I listened to you talk about that with uh Sadie <laughs> yeah. from CDRT <laughs> yeah for a little bit like when uh some of the early episodes it almost probably shows how I kind of stopped running as much um but uh but yeah, like this definitely at some point was like about to just become the runner podcast. But uh, but I like kind of capped off at like right right around like three miles, and I feel like I can't push past it for some. That's reason. what a lot of people tell me because they'll be like, "How do you run like twenty something miles?" I don't know. Yeah, and I'm just like, you just go really really slow. Like just go really really. Like I think there's this like internal pressure where you're running. You're like, you're, I'm running. I gotta like hit this time and it, it anything slower than like 10 minutes starts to sound like you're like oh I don't want to run like a 12 or 14 minute mile but like that's the way I started running like insane lengths of time would just be like well I'm just gonna go really like turtle speed until it doesn't hurt anymore yeah yeah I mean I, that definitely helps like I've had I had some times when I was like building up to that I basically you know, have to like start from scratch but when I was like running uh, when I kind of got closer to three miles, like definitely slowing down, like helped me make sure that I just maintain, like being more steady. Yeah. You'll hurt important. yourself. Yeah. Um, like I, I'm not actively running like, like at the beginning of the pandemic, another mental illness thing is like I running was very like an escapist thing for me. So I would go on these like long few hours of running and then just get like very obsessive about running and be like I have to run this many miles every day and then I trained for this marathon that got canceled uh, and it was like oh stay in place like corona whatever so um after the marathon got canceled I was still like I need to be in marathon shape I need to like continue running like a mad woman um and so, yeah, I basically trained for two marathons, neither one that I ran, because I was like, I initially was like, I'm going to go run a marathon by myself, stopped a little, 
started running and like Instagram live streaming and being like, I'm running a marathon. And then I hit mile 13 and like fucked up my leg really hard. And then I had to like be on Instagram and be like, I'm just kidding. I'm not running a marathon. It's a half marathon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not running like now. And I, my partner and I, we tried to go, we, we try to do a mile run just because I'm out of work and like borderline agoraphobic right now. And I don't know, just mental health reasons. But we, we try to like go on like a mile run as often as we can. And I like, I suck right now I'm so bad. I'm so, and it's like annoying. Cause they're like, yeah. I used to be so good at this very recently. Um, but yeah, that's, I think it's like a, an acceptance thing. Like you kind of have to accept that like when you don't run, you just suck at it for a minute. And I don't know. Cause it feels like a superpower when you do reach that point where you can run several miles like that. Cause you're like, this is awesome. Like I could run to the other side of fucking New York right now. And it feels, it feels like a superpower. It's cool. Um, so then it like having that ability go away is very frustrating. Cause they're like, I want to run like five bazillion miles, but my body won't let me. And then, you know, end up injuring yourself. Yeah. As I have done many times. Um, when did you start you started running you've been running way before like the pandemic right so I started I was on a track team in middle school and my my dad was like a marathon runner but I wasn't like I was on a track team I wasn't very good at it I could run a mile because I had like very good endurance but like I couldn't do any other events so I was worthless to the track team because they couldn't use me for anything because I'm not like a particularly fast runner I'm just couldn't go forever um and then yeah I stopped doing that I was like I want to be a brooding artist instead sports are not for me didn't really return to it until I was 21 and I was trying to be sober yeah that was about the time that I stopped doing drugs so I was like 21 and being like well the next logical step after drug addiction is running like obviously that's what you have to do after you beat drugs it's you become a runner um and then I I did I got really into it that year um and I mean like I off and on for the past four years I've been you know like pretty active about it but like even now I'm trying to scale back and like just be like all right it's cool to just run a mile like it's cool to just run a few miles and not do it every day because otherwise I'll get like sucked into it and I think like if I when I think about like when I stopped drinking um it was almost like there was just since I wasn't going to therapy at that point it just felt like I would just pick something else and kind of run with that you know not running I wish it was running but it was like that's like a hard thing like I mean I I feel like I'm an addict like I don't do anything and I haven't done any anything in a long time um, but I feel like I'm, I'm still just like an addictive person, you know? Right. And so it's hard, like, you know, it's like, it's good, I guess, if running is the next vice, but it is hard if it becomes almost a negative thing because of how obsessively yeah. you do it. Well, it's you like know? my dad did always describe it to me. He's like, and I mean, not to go, I mean, like he's going through a divorce and, you know, he was always like, he loved running. And then I do realize that like, we share some of the same addictive personalities um but I also finding out like what my mental illness was like 
overshare you like I went to psych ward and got diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and then I realized that it's like I my body is like trying to do anything to escape the intense feelings that come with borderline personality disorder like so normal people feel sadness or happiness I feel it like times a thousand and I can't I have no emotional regulation so for me something like running helps me feel like I have control because I know definitively if like I ran then I would have a better mental health day than if I didn't so like sometimes they would like cling on to that but it, it could be running it could be alcohol it could be like weed it could be like anything that's like an escape from feeling that way but then now I'm like in therapy and talking about how like all right you gotta like find balance like you can still run but you don't have to run a marathon <laughs> you can just run for fun and I stopped timing myself a while ago and I kind of let my partner just keep it on his phone and like he knows how fast we're going but I don't look anymore I just I'm like all right I'm just gonna run a mile with you if it takes 15 minutes if it takes nine minutes I'm just gonna do it and then that's been it's been good but same same with drinking and stuff too because I, I know not a lot of post-drug addicts drink like that's a big no mm-hmm. for it like I I don't know, I was listening to a recovery podcast, but like, it's just genuinely not, no one does it because if it's not heroin, then it, they're like, well, you will just drink a million drinks instead. Um, but I found like reintroducing alcohol in my life, but I'm like, all right, I have two drinks and then I stop <laughs> and like just setting limits for everything that I do. I'm like, all right, I'm going to run a mile. And then that's, that's all because I, I will get like obs- obsessive over anything I'm doing like I can spend like eight hours playing a video game and then just be like this is what I want to do for the rest of my time now <laughs> just like just play this um so yeah just practicing like balancing the good and bad yeah it's it's definitely like a, a struggle like it, it's it's kind of like with how long that I haven't been drinking like there was a point where it was like I stopped smoking weed really young, um, basically because I didn't want to pay for it. Like it was, we would go over to this, like no one when we were younger wanted to smoke alone because you didn't want to be a pothead. And so like, that was like, or at <laughs> so least like funny, me growing up. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's where it's like, I think it's like silly semantics. I, I, you know, it was like my group of friends, it was like, no one wanted to be a pothead. You know, that was like the thing it felt like. And then, so it was like, we would all smoke together. And then eventually it took like, you know, like a year or so, like we would have like a, and they would pass it around. And then eventually they just like, after a year, they were like, you never buy weed. And, and I was like, uh, yeah, I do. And they're like, who do you, you don't share it with us. And I was like, I buy it from uh, my friend. And then it <laughs> ended up like my friend knew that other friend. It was like, no, you don't. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I just stopped. Someone definitely called me out for being mooch once (laughs) in high school because I didn't even think about it. Like I didn't realize I was doing it. But I, I don't know. I started drinking like really, really young just because it was so readily available in the house um, at like like 12 or 13. Oh my God. Yeah, I was very, very young. Um, And then weed, I remember like being excited about it. I'm like, smoking weed is cool like it'll be really fun and like at that time when I was in high school I think like people are really like changing their tune about marijuana too and they're like marijuana is helpful it has all these benefits and blah 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 
Um, so I like had a, one very cool progressive friend like whose parents were potheads and then it was like safe to go and smoke pot there and then that's where we like all would yeah. go do it and like these, the cool parents house um but then eventually I, like she called me out she's like oh you don't ever like buy your own weed and I was like damn damn yeah. I was like I don't <laughs> it's okay I'm an adult now I I can't yeah. I just can't afford weed like the rest of everybody yeah I just at that point it was just like well I'll just stop smoking weed forever because you know <laughs> and then I just started drinking a lot more and then you know and then yeah. it was like yeah the point kind of going back to what we were saying I was like you just kind of like replace one thing with the other and, and so it's hard to kind of like balance that like I wish that I could fully shift it all even being able to shift it all to running that you know is definitely better than you know uh yeah and that's kind of like what my dad was like hinting at. he's like just so you know like you should find something good to channel this yeah. into you know <laughs> one tip from you know one yeah. person to another don't understand one i guess one thing that we did not do enough was talk about tiger milk by bell and sebastian yeah i'm sorry uh, Stuart. <laughs> Sorry, Stuart. This is the uh, opposite of Sean's podcast. <laughs> yes, yeah, this is the actual inverse of Sean's <laughs> podcast. Um, I guess before we, I guess this will wrap up. But uh, do you? Where can people find you on online? You want to see my shit posts <laughs> at Sammy Lanzetta on everything. S A double M I. Lanzetta sounds like lasagna. It has a Z in it. You'll figure it out. Well, I guess on that note, Tinder we're done. Sponsor me. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you guys know everything you need to know about Bell and Sebastian's 1996 classic Tiger Milk. Yeah. So, so maybe I can get Stuart on the line as like an addition at the very end, just to kind of like leave a voicemail, you know. He's someone I would genuinely not I don't think I can ever meet him because I would freak out too much. Like, I don't think I'd behave appropriately. Like, I don't think it's okay to talk to famous people if you know that you would not behave appropriately around them. I do appreciate you talking to me about sort of about Bell and Sebastian, but that's exactly (laughs) what I want this podcast to be. So that's great. I really spun out, didn't I? Hello there, we're Secret Jocks Podcast, three musicians who became even better friends through the love of NBA basketball. Catch us every Tuesday and Friday recapping the past week of NBA hoops and talking with other artists who share the same passion for the game. From the tour van to the hardwood, Secret Jocks Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks again to Sammy Lanzetta. Also check out her newest album, Ceiling Mirror, on 6131 Records. So next week, we're chatting with Chris Terry, the author of Black Card and Zero Fade. Chris has also played in bands Light Diffuse and Run, as well as Flesh Eating Creeps. Chris is an amazing writer, and I totally recommend picking up both books. We're talking about the 2006 album Donuts by the late, great Jay Dilla. To be honest, it was an album I unfortunately hadn't really spent much time with, but it was a pleasure to dive into it with Chris Terry. 
Once again, check out our Patreon. We drop next week's episode early, so please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks, as always, to Sarah Blumenthal for producing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Hit the theme! <laughs>